Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. We are joined today by someone who does something really rare in today's political environment. Uh, He actually engages with people who hold different views. And we are in an era where Republicans um, don't go on MSNBC or CNN. And and frankly, in some circles, they're encouraged not to. And most Democrats uh, do not go on Fox uh, for the same reasons. Um, But our guest today is consistently up for the conversation. Uh, He, in my judgment, has a very bright future in politics if if he wants it. But let's find out more about Congressman Ro Khanna from the great state of California. Congressman, thank you for joining us. I I want to start kind of in an unusual way. Tell us about a young Ro Khanna. What were you like? What were you interested in? Well, Trey, I appreciate it. Uh, Honored to be on. You know, I like I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Uh, I used to collect baseball cards, uh, used to go to uh, baseball card shows. We had a couple of us, uh, my buddies in sixth and seventh grade, we used to set up at uh, baseball card shows, sell baseball cards, trade baseball cards. Uh, played Little League, wasn't very good at it. Uh, was better at the field than uh, hitting. Uh, my memories of when I was up at the plate, people saying, watch the bunt because they used to have me bunt so, uh, uh, often enough because I couldn't couldn't hit. So they used to, everyone used to chant that. But we uh, we had a pretty good uh, team, at least when I was 12, the Expos. And uh, one of my favorite things being at Congress is that someone had tweeted out the roster of the uh, Expos for my Little League team. And uh, I got to catch up with some of the, the folks who were there. Uh, and, you know, played street hockey, played touch football, uh, went to uh, Rolling Hills High and uh, in junior high school. And probably in, around uh, ninth or 10th grade, I started actually developing some interest in uh, in politics and current affairs, not an elective part. But I used to write letters to the editor uh, to the Bucks County uh, Courier Times. And I often tell the story. I, I, my first sort of thing that was published at 14 was about the first Gulf War and uh, the the columnist of the Bucks County Courier, Courier Times said, read this 14-year-old's lips, George. It was the first uh, President Bush. And I was so excited. I thought the president was going to read my op-ed. Now I realize I could write in the New York Times, the president doesn't read your op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how true that is, Congressman. How true that is. If I, if my memory serves me, uh, I think your father was a chemical engineer. Mother may have been a school teacher. Were they interested in public policy slash politics, or did they look at their son and think, where, where did this come from? Why are you writing letters to the editor? You know, they were somewhat interested. I mean, they were immigrants, so they, you know, were more focused on keeping the head down, getting uh, a house, making paying the bills. Uh, but my mom's father uh, spent years in jail uh, alongside Gandhi in the 1940s and in the 1930s as well in India's independence movement. And so she had grown up in India in a family that was pretty close to politics, and he was part of India's very, very first parliament. So they, I, I'm sure that had an influence, uh, at least on her. And I remember uh, sometimes during dinner uh, as a family, we'd watch Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw, and they'd make some comments uh, about it. It wasn't they were not politically active, but I would say they were well, well informed 
uh, about the news and what was going on. What did you major in at Yale? Uh, why did you pick that? And would you pick it again if you were doing it all over again? So I first went to University of Chicago where I studied economics and people who know my politics can't believe that I sat through uh, uh, years at the University of Chicago in economics and turned out the way I did. I mean, I, I think some of my professors at Chicago may want to refine or they want to revoke my economics and, uh, economics uh, degree. But I, 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 I enjoyed it and I, I enjoyed Chicago uh, a lot because they're you read a lot of the, the great books. Uh, it's where I really realized that there are a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I'll ever be uh, and actually gave me a sense of humility. Yale was interesting. Like Yale, you got a bunch of people who all want to be president, want to be Supreme Court justice, except, you know, it's teeming with ambition. Uh, and it's fine. I still have friends there, but I got actually more of a substantive education uh, at Chicago. Wow. And then you, you clerk for a judge on the Court of Appeals, if I if I read your resume correctly. Is that right? I did, which was uh, very interesting. Morris Arnold, uh, he was a uh, judge uh, in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and his brother was a judge, too. He was more, uh, more I think he was slightly more conservative, but a great, uh, a great judge and academic. And I got to spend a year uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, which for me was the first time really uh, spending time down south. And I I enjoyed my time there. It, it's what made me a fan of uh, barbecue. I never really had barbecue before <laughs> uh, going down to Little Rock. And I also gave me an, an appreciation for sort of the incredible diversity of the country. There was this like Indian American group in Little Rock, Arkansas that was doing all these things and uh, would invite me to different events. And this was back in the early 2000s. So I, I enjoyed the year there and Buzz Arnold just turned 80 and uh, still am in touch with him. More of my interview with Congressman Ro Khanna is next. All right, you did one of the hardest and, in my judgment, loneliest things that someone can do, which is run against an incumbent. Uh, and I know how lonely it is from personal experience. I just wrote a book on making decisions. And so you had a decision to make. I'm sure there were people in your life saying, OK, Congressman, you have a bright future, but wait, just, just wait. Don't don't run this cycle. What led to your decision to challenge an incumbent, which is a very, very hard thing to do? So I did it twice. The first after law school, I came in and challenged an incumbent in my own party where, you know, as you know, if you step into you go into a room and uh, your own party folks will be going in the other direction if you're challenging uh, an incumbent. But at the time, uh, this incumbent had voted uh, for the war in Iraq. I was opposed to the war and I wanted to. Uh, get that perspective out and 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 challenge him. And people said, "You got a future. Why are you doing this? You're going to end your career uh, before it even uh, began." The irony of all of that is that you know, I'm not saying it works out like this for everyone, but I got I got killed in that first campaign. I mean, Lantos got seventy some percent. I got twenty percent, and he actually ended up uh, becoming a, a a mentor of sorts. He uh, sort of admired the chutzpah. And he said, look, uh, if you're not a movie star, you don't just get up and run for the United States Congress. This is a more organic process. And it actually uh, got me, he helped open some doors in 
the Democratic Party and uh, was was pretty gracious about the whole thing. Um, I'm not I'm not recommending it for other folks necessarily that person you challenge will end up becoming uh, someone who becomes a mentor. But in my case, in, in this situation, it worked out. All right. Keeping with the theme that most of our most of our listeners um, have never run for office, probably won't run for office, but they have suffered setbacks. They have suffered disappointments. So you ran and and according to your words, you got killed. I mean, I look, it's hard to run against an incumbent. You said you got killed, but yet you ran again. So what was it about that loss that did not demoralize you such that you said, look, I don't want to go through that again? So it was about 10 years uh, before I ran again, but I uh, I loved running, I mean, at the time, because I, I still, you know, you get to say what you believe. All these people, you know, one of the things that I find uh, rather odd as people say, well, bro, how do you do it? How do you put up with being a member of Congress at this moment? And I say, look, we're in the greatest nation in the world. There are 330 million people in this country. And there are 535 who get to have some say in the direction of the country. That's an awesome, awesome responsibility. And I don't take it for granted any day. I think it's the most remarkable thing. It's like winning the lottery of lotteries. And I loved the idea of running for politics and getting to say my views and getting to have an impact. And I I wish more people would just talk about some of the positives of politics, because I think, you know, we're so afraid that sometimes of saying it, and young people, it's almost like they're embarrassed about wanting to do stuff in politics. I mean, this is a phenomenal country. It's still the most open country in the world. And for me, it was exhilarating to say, look, some person, a son of immigrants, can have an impact and people care. And so it's something that I always wanted to do afterwards. And But I realized I had a long way to go because I had a pretty poor showing. And so then I said, okay, what are the things I got to improve? I got to uh, figure out how to be more tied in the community. Got to get some experience. Got to be able to raise money. I and mean, that's the reality of politics these days. And I didn't re- really do that in my first campaign. And then I, 10 years later, after I felt I had developed all of that, uh, there was a, a new district that came out and I thought I'd be a good person to represent uh, Silicon Valley district and, and ran and lost a second time. Came close, 52-48. But lost a second time. You have done the hardest thing, I think, in politics, which is to challenge an incumbent. People wait for decades, if not lifetimes, for an open Senate seat. And sometimes it never happens. I mean, I'm from a state that had Fritz Hollings and Strom Thurmond. I think together they served for over a century. So the graveyard's full of people that were waiting on those seats to come open. But there is an open California Senate seat, and people have talked about you for 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 the presidency. So have you thought about it? What goes into your decision making on saying, yes, this is an opportunity, but I may not seize this opportunity. I may take a pass. I did think about it um, for the reasons you said. I mean, these open Senate seats don't come up that often. Uh, and uh, I had a a path, not saying I would have won, but certainly would have been a, a contender. I, I decided against it for a couple of reasons. One, I I actually think the House of Representatives has become one of the most exciting places to serve. Think about on both sides, on the left and the right. You know, some of the most famous people, the most influential people are these days in the House of Representatives. So the, the calculus has changed. And 
I, 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 I shouldn't take a shot at someone, but I much choked around saying, you know, they always had Chris Christie on this week, every, 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 every other week. And I said, just pick a random person from the Republican House caucus and you get more of a sense of where, where the country is. Or pick a random person from the Democratic caucus. These are folks who are much more in touch with uh, the grassroots and, uh, and it's a vibrant place uh, to serve. So that was one of it. Two, I represent Silicon Valley. Uh, with AI and technology, uh, that's an enormous platform. Three, you know, I kind of think of myself as this hybrid from Pennsylvania and Silicon Valley. If there's any grounding to my political career, it's remembering the kids I grew up with uh, when we would root for the Eagles and the Phillies. And I think being from the Valley uh, actually allows me to go to rural towns, factory towns, talking about bringing new jobs, manufacturing in a way that may not have uh, the same ability to do that representing the state. So those were some of the factors. But, you know, if I had run, it would have been a uh, probably a one out of three shot because there's no guarantee in life. And those are pretty decent odds for a Senate seat. Congressman, I teach a class at a small liberal arts school on Congress, and, and we start the semester. I want them in a fair non-ad hominem way to, to try to, in a sentence or two, explain the difference between the progressive orthodoxy and the conservative orthodoxy. What not, you know, I mean, there's so many labels now, socialists, extremists, uh, uh, none of that, none of that. That will get you an F in my class. I want like a a thoughtful explanation of what makes someone progressive versus conservative. And I have it in my head, but I'd be curious because you are a thoughtful person. Is it the role of government? Is that the best way you think to explain the difference or am I missing something? Actually, I was going to say exactly that. It's the uh, faith that people have in the power of government to do good. And uh, and this is why I go on. You were kind to say, uh, go on different shows and talk to different people. It's because I genuinely don't think anyone has a monopoly on the truth. I mean, I have a stronger belief in the role of government to uh, help us bring manufacturing, to help create equality of economic opportunity. But, you know, if we didn't have pushback, if people were saying, hey, bro, that government isn't working that well here. These programs aren't working that well here. Uh, have you thought about the negative impact of, of, of the money you're, you're calling for spending? Then uh, there wouldn't be uh, the same kind of uh, rigor and scrutiny. I, I think one of the best parts of the American system is it forces you to actually test your ideas and have, have pushback. Now, some of that, when it turns into ad hominem attacks and uh, other things is is obviously not the best of our tradition. But for me, I guess I have I guess I have enough humility that the 250 years of American history has a collective wisdom to it that doesn't mean you don't push for new ideas, but that you've got to test it uh, within that tradition. Uh, and I I really think it the the basic difference comes from how much people think government can work uh, towards ends that are often common ends. I, I really think you put your finger on it. I think the role and scope of government, uh, w assuming no bad intentions on either side, that is sort of the 
the line of demarcation for me in terms of how people figure out their 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 politics and you know that gets lost and the lines do get blurred because you know my side of the aisle they do like big government in certain areas <laughs> they just don't like it in some i mean they used to say that i was a a big government law enforcement Republican. Well, I mean, <laughs> law, law enforcement is is all government. So, I mean, if you are pro law enforcement, you are pro government. All right, let me switch to the law. I think you taught a course on jurisprudence. Did you? Do I have that? Right? I did. I taught one course at San Francisco State a while back. All right. Well, if you taught one course, you still know more about it than I do. But I want to. You're a deep Not thinker. Sure <laughs> no, you trust me. You do. You're a deep thinker, so I'm gonna ask you a deep question. We are a nation of laws, not men and women, is what they tell us. What do we do with a law that we believe is unjust? I think there was a debate between Lon Fuller and HLA Hart about you know positivism with the Nuremberg trials. You know, they said we were following the law. You have an unjust law. Number one, I guess, in your mind, who determines just? And and what is the role of the law if we think the law is unjust? Well, that's a deep question. You know, when I used to teach, there were two things that I would assign students that get to some of these questions. One was Abraham Lincoln's Lyceum Address. And he uh, gave that when he was in his late 30s. And Lincoln basically said, you know, what happens if in America someone comes up with the ambition of... Uh, a Napoleon or a, our, our founders, uh, and it's not good enough to just be in Congress or governors. They want to start uh, something new, and that we, they, history is full of people with this kind of ambition. And Lincoln says the the way to check that ambition is to have a fidelity to the Constitution and to the rule of law, and to channel that kind of ambition into a, a constitutional patriotism. And the, on the other hand, uh, King, Martin Luther King, with, with his letter from a Birmingham jail, where he talks about uh, the moral law and, and a moral law uh, that uh, supersedes the, uh, the laws of a nation and when it makes sense to, to, to follow your own conscience. And my own grandfather, of course, went to jail in India uh, resisting uh, British colonialism. I guess my uh reconciliation of that is for most of us most of the time uh follow the law i mean this is not one of the things that you just get to decide uh i don't like the law and there are a lot of ways that you can uh challenge the law through the political process in a country that i still think is the most open to the political system but for those who uh really their conscience cannot abide by them uh following the law what i would say is uh, then do it in the way that King did it, uh, peacefully, nonviolently, and be willing to uh, have the consequences of that. I mean, King uh, went to jail, and he understood that, and he he uh, was willing to to go to jail because he understood we were a democracy under laws. But it's his conscience that didn't allow him to do that. Uh, so that's how I would uh, try to reconcile the two. You know, I think that you are. Uh, as close to being 100 percent right as one can be with an answer that that complicated. Um, I, I like to remind people that Dr. King wrote that letter from jail. Um, so there was a consequence to his belief in the um, unjustness of that law. The other thing that so, too, for your grandfather, 
I mean, uh, uh, Jim Clyburn, you know, met yeah. his, his late wife, Emily, in jail. So the consequence of the law, they were willing to accept to change it. I, and the other thing that just floors me about that letter from Birmingham jail, the, all the references to literature and history and scripture with no library, just just whatever was in his head, he was able to write. Um, and that letter, you correct me if I'm wrong, that letter was not written to his political opponents. That letter was written to people that were supposed to be his friends. Um, and it is a very challenging. I would encourage people to to read that. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I'm going to be mindful of your time. You represent Silicon Valley. The Surgeon General has issued some, some warnings recently, particularly as it relates to young women, uh, young girls, about the harmful effects of social media. What, in your judgment, is the role of government versus parents versus the platforms themselves? If you know or believe that something is harmful, dangerous, um, we regulate it in almost every other facet of life, from alcohol to, to uh, tobacco to driving. What is the role of government with social media titans? To me, it's pretty simple. we got to protect our kids. You know, we could step back and have a debate about social media, free speech versus censorship and viewpoints and what should be on there. But when it comes to kids, kids are 12, 13, 14, and you've got software engineers creating algorithms to get them addicted and get them to feel the worst experience in junior high on steroids. And we know that one third of teenage girls in America have some point at some point contemplated suicide, not meaning that it gets to a medical condition, but just have had the thought. And we know that they are often having eating disorders. I don't understand how as a Congress, Republican or Democrat, we're not regulating this stuff. I mean, we've got to say, uh, empower the FTC, say that there can't be a harm to the child and have them review all these likes and algorithms so that it's not hurting uh, our kids. It seems to me, even in our polarized time, that that is something that we should be able to come together, Republican and Democrat, and get past. You mentioned free speech. I, I You're the perfect person I hear that phrase all the time, as if you and I have a First Amendment right to appear on whatever show we want to appear on tonight. We do not. Um, and you don't have a First Amendment right to address the, the floor of the House. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I think you got to be recognized. So we hear this, you know, Twitter or fill in the blank is violating my right to free speech. And the way I look at it is it's a private company and if they have rules and you're not following the rules so how do you reconcile this belief in free speech with the reality that the first amendment applies to government not not to private companies well you're absolutely right in terms of the first amendment doctrine i think people throw that around probably loosely uh and yeah twitter or facebook can come up with their own rules uh, a university could come up with its own rules but i think when people often invoke free speech, they invoke just a sense of what they hope is uh, is, is fairness and not uh, p- 
people coming at things with ideological bias. So if you were in your classroom, uh, you'd, I imagine, have a free speech right to uh, just tell people that, you know, progressives like Khanna are totally I I idiots and, 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 and don't have any uh, reason to understand what they believe. But that probably wouldn't make you a great educator. And the same with Twitter. It could have a conversation where they censor left or right perspectives. And that's in their First Amendment right. But I think what people are reacting to is a, a sense of this country that we've lost respect for each other, that we come to things with moral judgment and ideological bias. And they just want folks to, to respect their point of view and listen to a robust debate. And that, to me, is a important value in this country. And uh, uh, I think that value is worth celebrating more, uh, that we should try to persuade people, listen to folks, and not come with the kind of the moral judgment we do, assuming that somehow we're better or smarter, uh, but really try to engage in a conversation. All right. This is a hard question. I, I, I actually posed it when I was on the House Intel Committee uh, to some of the media titans. Uh, those are smart lawyers. They were smart enough not to try to answer it. But I do not I mean, you and I are talking on a Monday. I do not see the value in me telling people that we're talking on a Thursday. I, I just it's wrong. It's inaccurate. I don't know how it benefits people. Where do you think the line is, if at all, between free speech and propagating intentionally misinformation? So I would say two things. One, I tend to have a more robust view of the American public than some. And uh, yeah, when the whole election with Donald Trump happened and people were saying Russian disinformation, I'm sure there was a role for Russian disinformation. But you know what? A lot of people in America still made a judgment. And they I believe that Americans tend to sift through things and over the long run, get it right. So the first point I would say is the more you can expose people to multiple perspectives, the more confidence I have uh, in the American public to, to get it right. The second thing I would say is there should be uh, standards that uh, people like you have, others have about uh, basic ethics and responsibility to, to facts. And it's, a, it's sad to me that some of those standards have uh, fallen by, by the wayside. And then finally, you can't do say things that are uh, blatantly uh, untrue and or are going to create a public health crisis and there should be standards to that. But I, I, I actually do, I am more optimistic about the state, I guess, of American democracy than, than most. And maybe it's because of my grandfather's experience. Maybe it's because of people like Martin Luther King and Jim Clyburn and John Lewis. You know, after uh, Trump won, there was an 18-year-old uh, who came to one of my town halls. It was like a year after I was elected. And his mom stood up and asked me, Ro, how can I tell my 18-year-old son uh, to care about American politics or do anything when you have Donald Trump, who's just been elected in office? I think people were shocked or surprised when I said. I said, ma'am, with due respect, your son hasn't earned the right for cynicism. There are people who've died for this country. There are people who have died in the wars, have died in the civil rights movement. Like we, we have been the beneficiary of so much sacrifice 
we can figure this out. We can figure out how we talk to each other again, how we disagree respectfully. And I think we have such collective wisdom in this country that I'm still hopeful about the American experiment. Boy, you are uh, you, you are a lot better person than I am, bro, because when my mom forwards that email to me that members of Congress serve one term and get their salary for life and don't pay into Social Security and our kids don't <laughs> pay back student loans and literally everything in that email is false, literally. And I'm sitting there thinking, why do we have a First Amendment? What is the value I don't know if you've seen that email or not. I've seen it. I've seen it from friends. I've seen it from I've seen it from family members, uh, and uh, you know. But you, you know this. I mean, uh, you figure out pretty quickly. You don't go run for Congress or be in Congress to get respect. <laughs> there, no. are other, there are a lot of other things. A lot of other uh, uh, life choices you can make if uh, if that's the the goal. But you know, again, I, I get. You know, I was a. Your listeners probably disagree with it. I was a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign, and he used to complain all the time about the press. And I said, you know, Sarah Sanders, you're running to be the most powerful person in the world. You know, you're going to Congress. You're one of the most powerful people in the world. Like you're in the point one one percent. So if they if they say stuff about us that's not true, so what? I guess <laughs> I guess it's the price of uh, accountability, and uh, I I kind of let it slide. <laughs> All right, I'm going to let you slide with two final questions that I hope will be easy and hopefully fun for you. Your dream job, and and doesn't have to be politics. I mean, it can be the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Your dream job, if you could start it tomorrow. You know, my dream job used to be to be a playwright, and then I realized I wasn't very good at writing plays, and uh, so much went there. So maybe, maybe, maybe producing a, a play or doing something in the in the theater I, uh, uh, that would probably be on on the top of mind a book you've read that changed your life and you would recommend to others I would say uh, a theory of justice by John Rawls and I'll, I'll tell you why it's it's a progressive vision of justice and people may agree or disagree with it but it'll make you much more thoughtful and why you agree or why you disagree Ro Connor from the great state of California. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed serving with you. You were a very decent uh, person, even to those with whom you disagreed. Uh, that is your reputation, and that is a that's a great reputation to have. So I appreciate. It. I felt the same about you, Trey, and you're welcome back in Congress. You know, I know you're you're thriving and teaching, and but I appreciate you're doing these kind of podcasts. Uh, I, I really think I'm not sure it's going to be Congress that gets us out of the mess and the 24 election is going to be an absolutely ugly election in this country. But maybe things like what you're doing and people, Americans, just finding ways to talk to each other. You know, eventually, I think that's what's going to uh, start to change things in this country. Yeah, I, I, I sit there. I was sitting there thinking on Memorial Day of all the soldiers buried together in mass graves. Uh, even perhaps fighting for a, a country that, that that didn't fully appreciate them, particularly soldiers of color. And now we have trouble making it through Thanksgiving Day lunch with people who have different political views. I just I, I don't know how we got here, but I don't learn a lot from talking to people who agree with everything that I agree with. I mean, they don't know any more than I know. So I, I like talking to people that have different views and. You are. No, sorry, Craig, one, one thing you said struck with me is when you said Dr. King was 
filled with literature and history. And maybe that's something I think that's missing in this country is that we just don't have enough of an appreciation of the history of this country. And when you do, you realize how many people have had it so much harder than we do and have sacrificed so much more than we have. And how it's kind of very indulgent for us uh, to throw that away or not respect that. And I, I, I actually think it's the history that Dr. King had, that Lincoln had. You look at our greatest leaders, and it's not just that they were brilliant or smart or thoughtful. They were steeped in sort of embodied uh, American history. And oftentimes there was a humility there that we don't always see in, um, in, in our culture. But I've kept you longer than I should keep a hardworking member of Congress who is serving on lots and lots of committees. Ro Khanna, thank you for joining us. All the best to you until we talk again. Thank you, Trey. Thank you for having me. Appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. Take care. Take care. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.